Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. The coronavirus pandemic has been happening for almost two years now, and we still don't see an end in sight. And no matter who you are or what your experience has been, we have all been under prolonged stress as a result of this pandemic. But what happens to our bodies and our mental health when we've been under stress that's lasted almost two years and running? And how does prolonged stress impact our creativity and our relationships with other people? Despite being under prolonged stress, the good news is that there are easy things you can begin doing today to help you feel better and function more like yourself. And today I'm talking with therapist, Dr. Caroline Edelman, and we're going to talk about all of that and more today on Music Therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a podcast all about musicians and music and creativity. We talk about recording, touring, balancing life and music, anything that goes under being a musician, feeling inspired with a special emphasis on mental health. And I'm really going to focus on mental health today. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have for some time, and I'm pushing it out as fast as I can because this was a really great conversation on prolonged stress. We've all been under prolonged stress as a result of the pandemic, and it's like this thing that's hanging over us, and you really can't escape it, Um, and we don't see an end in sight to it yet. So we're going to talk about what that does to us, how you can cope with it, simple things you can do today to kind of maybe kickstart routine, kickstart your creativity, or just learning more about it can even be so powerful in dealing with everything that we're going through. Before we get to a conversation, I want to talk about a couple upcoming events. The first is next Tuesday. That's October 12th at the Empty Bottle. I'm going to be playing a show with with a full band. That's uh, My full band is myself, Joshua Wentz, who plays... He plays keys and really great synthesizer, pedals, electronica stuff, uh, very psychedelic. Brian Wiesa, who also plays in the band Richard Album, he plays bass in our in our new setup. And Jen Romero, who is of the Jellies and also plays in Richard Album. She plays flute. These are all songs that I wrote last year where I had nothing but a guitar and a flute and those are two instruments that I play and so I wrote songs with those instruments and we are we've been working on putting them all together and they're sounding really nice so we're going to be playing at the empty bottle next Tuesday uh Will Orchard is the headliner Esther from Chicago was also going to be there as well as many places so that's going to be a great show next Tuesday at the empty bottle October 12th and then next Wednesday October 13th I'm hosting our monthly group session at Cafe Mustache, and that's with Chicago band Izzy True. And we're going to do an in-depth conversation with Izzy True. There's going to be comedy, there's going to be video, and they're going to do a live performance. It's all going to be streaming at Cafe Mustache's Twitch channel, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, But you can also come in person. It's very safe. Um, They require vaccination, masks, all of that. And if you feel comfortable, we would love to have you come out. Those shows are, are really, really fun. And if you want to know about other upcoming events, please visit musictherapypodcast.com. So we're going to turn to our conversation with uh, Dr. Caroline Edelman all about prolonged stress. First, I thought it would be good to start out with a song of mine called Help Me. And this is off the album, I See You Among the Stars. One, two, three. 
Okay, that was Help Me, off my album, I See You Among the Stars. So let's turn to my conversation with Dr. Caroline Edelman, but first a quick bio for Dr. Edelman. Dr. Edelman completed her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She completed her pre-doctoral and post-doctoral fellowships at the Child Study Center at Yale University. Prior to establishing Chicago Psychotherapy, Dr. Edelman worked as a staff therapist and co-director of the Child and Adolescent Anxiety Clinic at the Family Institute at Northwestern University which is actually where I did my master's in counseling psychology. Dr. Edelman specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and adjustment disorders across the lifespan. She's joining us today to talk about prolonged stress. And here's my conversation with Dr. Caroline Edelman. Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Caroline Edelman. And Caroline, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I've been really looking forward to this conversation, um, even before I reached out to you, because I'm very interested in talking about prolonged stress, given what we've all been through the past, how many months we've been through it. And that's something that um, I was interested in just learning more about and sharing more about what prolonged stress is, how it impacts us, and how we can cope with prolonged stress when we're in the middle of so much that's going on in our world. Um, yeah, why don't we start with maybe kind of some definitions? What, what, is, what is stress? So people talk about this in a couple of different ways. And I actually want to make an important distinction that Emily and Amelia Nagoski made in their book, Burnout, which is between stress and stressors. So stressors are all the things going on in the world around us or happening sort of to us in life that activate our stress response. People will often use that term interchangeably with the term stress, but in fact, the way that they've defined this is stress is how we respond, kind of what goes on in our body and for us cognitively in response to stressors. Um, I think it's a really important distinction. We can talk a little bit more about this later, but in part because we often expect that stress will pass as soon as stressors are resolved. And that's actually not the case. We have to deal with stress itself differently. Yeah. So can you, can you share with us what the stress response in the body is? Sure. So essentially we all have this inbuilt alarm system, if you will, that is intended to primarily help us survive. So this is a really old adaptive system that helps us, for example, respond really quickly if a saber-toothed tiger is <laughs> approaching. And that part of our brain, the emotion brain really activated um, in the face of fear or stress by the amygdala is a very primitive system designed to say really, really quickly, hey, there's a problem here. We got to figure out whether to run, whether to fight, or whether to freeze and try not, not to get noticed. Um, and so when that stress response kicks into gear, automatically this entire cascade of things happens in the brain and in the body. And you have this really resource intensive process in the brain and body of trying to make a rapid risk calculation, a rapid calculation about what behavior is likely to increase your chance of survival. And then you have all of the physiological resources gathered at once to respond in real time to the stressor. 
So that's incredibly helpful if you are in fact facing a saber-toothed tiger or a car swerving into your car, right? You don't have time to kind of run calculations. You just have to automatically have a reflexive reaction that keeps you safe in that situation. But when we're talking about prolonged stress, one of the things that happens is you have this incredibly resource intensive process and all that physiological activation and all the cognitive hyper-focus on what could go wrong, but you don't have a break from it, right? And so when the stressors stick around much longer than the kind of acute stressor that, or acute set of stressors that our brain has developed to respond to, it's actually really bad for the body, right? Because over time, that means heightened blood pressure, heightened heart rate, um, a kind of hypervigilance looking for things that could go wrong. And it feels like you're running a marathon for a very, very long time. Yeah. You know, the thing about responding, the stress response to say a car swerving or a saber-toothed tiger is that it's this you know, feels like a very intense, acute situation where sort of all forces, all internal forces are directed towards that threat. And, you know, it, it feels like in that moment, that's overriding everything else you could think about or be, be feeling or be calculating. And if we're having um, a prolonged stress response, I would imagine then that not only is hard on our sort of physiological system, but also is impairing our ability to function in other areas of our life where we might need additional bandwidth to deal with relationships or deal with work or just kind of get through our day to day. Exactly. That's exactly right. And and that's for a couple of reasons. So one is the piece I was talking about before that just it's really resource intensive to have that stress response activated. And so when it's activated in a prolonged way, you get something that we call heightened allostatic load, which means essentially wear and tear on the brain and on cognitive processes and on the body of that system being activated in those ways for much longer than really it was intended from an evolutionary perspective to be activated. Um, so that makes it harder to focus on other things. I mean, you're literally pulling cognitive resources. Your, your brain is doing the equivalent, maybe only for the stats nerds out there, but of like a Bayesian modeling <laughs> over and over and over and over to try to make risk decisions in real time in the face of constantly shifting data. Right. So we know that the, the things that activate our stress response are novelty and unpredictability and a feeling of not being able to control something and then the possibility of something being threatening. If you look at those four criteria, all of them have been present throughout the entire pandemic. Right. And what that means is we cannot get to a state of rest, <laughs> or at least you have to be very intentional about carving out breaks from that in order to get to a state of rest, right? So it does absolutely interfere um, by, by pulling resources towards really focusing on that threat. And also that makes us hypervigilant for other threats in the environment when we're in that mental state. Um, the other thing is that it depletes our reserves. Right. So there are a lot of things in life that require kind of 
grittiness or stick with itness, if you will, to just do things that are important to us, that are values driven, but hard work. And when our reserves are really depleted, it's a lot harder to do those things. It's a lot harder to have willpower for other things that matter to us, you know, to be patient with our partner or kids or to finish that work project that really matters to us, but it's also taking a lot of bandwidth and things like that. Um, and so, yeah, it starts to kind of bleed over into these other areas and people feel this general sense of malaise or languishing and often describe it as a kind of burnout feeling, sometimes without recognizing that the true source of that is just the exhaustion of that chronic stress state. And I think, you know, that's, that's a big part of why I wanted to have this conversation, because I think we all recognize how hard this has been, but I think it's really important to kind of remind ourselves that we're collectively, people's experiences of it have been different for sure, but we're collectively under this seemingly never ending cloud of stress of the pandemic. And like you said, a situation that's feeling out of our control, we're, we're not sure if there's, if there's an end or when the end would be. And to your point of trying to find some ways of escaping, I think that that's important, but it's also hard, it's kind of ever present. It's, it's very hard to forget about. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I think that distinction between managing stress and managing stressors becomes really important, right? Because the chronic thing right now is the background of chronic stressors. And people have different ones and they have them to different extents, but everyone has chronic stressors happening right now, um, especially related to the pandemic, but often other things that would have been there in the background too. Yeah. We all though can actually manage the stress itself and kind of give ourselves opportunities to recuperate. We just have to be really intentional about them because those natural kind of boundaries and natural opportunities for recuperation don't exist in the way that they did pre-pandemic for most of us. Yeah, and so I want to I want to get to kind of how to cope. And you said something earlier that I wanted to to revisit, which is I believe you said, you know, when we're something to the effect of when we're under stress, that makes us hyper vigilant to other stressors, and mm -hmm. you know, it makes me think about how that might affect us personally, or even on more of a societal level of perceiving threats in a heightened way, because we're all so stressed. Like, I guess I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or maybe examples that you've noticed of that. Yeah, so, so essentially, if you think of, this is an oversimplified model we now know, but it's, it's helpful, it's a helpful metaphor still. If you think of kind of, um, you having this more primitive emotional brain and then, and that's like your bodyguard. Okay. <laughs> and then this more evolved human brain. And that is your, your smart brain, your problem solver, your executive planner, your musician, your <laughs> everything kind of that makes you feel connected and human and unique in who you are then you can think of part of what happens when our stress response system is really activated is that we go to that more animalistic brain. Mm -hmm. and it actually, this is 
literally physiologically true that when you have that um, more amygdala activation, it directly suppresses activation in the prefrontal cortex. Right? And that's the part of our brain that helps us plan and anticipate consequences and connect and engage in creative thinking and problem solve effectively in all these different pieces. And so we literally lose access to the things that make us feel like the best versions of ourselves, not completely, but they're dampened. Mm -hmm. right? And so people often talk about, I feel less creative right now. I feel less connected right now. I feel um, like I can't even pick what flavor jelly I want at the grocery store, let alone make major life decisions. Um, and that's, that's a really natural response to that chronic stress state. Right. And so, sorry, I lost track. You were, you had asked a question that made, that was the lead into yeah, it. Remind me I mean, just as a, as a, um, if I can insert this thought, I think it will be very reassuring to, you know, a lot of the musicians who listen to this show, because so many of them have talked about, wow, I've had this opportunity this past year to maybe not work as much or be at home. And I would love to be working on music, but I'm just finding it really, really hard. And yeah. I think that would be very reassuring to hear. That's not just you or a matter of willpower being lazy. It's actually a physiological reason that you're having difficulty accessing that part of yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think with musicians and a lot of creative professionals, they're, it's multi-layered because for a lot of folks, this is their livelihood and their creative passion, mm -hmm. right? And so it's both a push and a pull for them. The pull is, I love this thing. It calls me and I feel really passionate about it. But the push is, I have to do this thing <laughs> to live, to pay my bills, right? And when this thing that has been a pull that drives you and is even often a really a coping space for a lot of people, or at least a space where they can get into a state of creative flow becomes a stressor because there's this pressure around needing to do it in a certain way or to a certain extent or to shift the ways in which you're doing it. And so it becomes an adaptive challenge instead of just a creative space for folks that can that can make it sort of a reminder of the stress of life right now in a way that makes it loaded for people. Absolutely. So going back to the idea of us being hypervigilant to stress because we're already sort of primed and you know feeling the stress already, I'm just I'm interested in thinking about, you know, musicians um Musicians often operate in a space where they're being very active on social media and there's this great, you know, um, awareness of social justice issues and having conversations and being active. And um, it's making me think, though, about the combination of being and I guess I want to expand this. I mean, I'm thinking about musicians when we're having this podcast, but I want to expand it, too. I mean, people are under chronic stress and sort of scanning the world, whether they mean to or not, for potential threats. So is the vaccine actually safe? Is this politician a threat to my, you know, whatever? And I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are, because it does feel like our world is so 
hyper stressed right now. Yes. So oh my gosh. So emotional. You are tapping into something so real. And thank you for reminding me. This is the point I was trying to lead into before with talking about the kind of two brains, if you will. Um, so when our, when our stress system is activated, the body guards on duty, essentially, right? We're like, I'm tagging out, <laughs> you take over. This is a survival situation. You're on duty. And it's kind of a blunt force instrument, right? Like really good at one job, which is looking for threat and then mobilizing resources in response to that threat. The problem is that we have way too much data coming into us at all times to possibly sort through all of it. So we rely a lot on cognitive shortcuts. And what that means is that we are much more likely to see what we already believe to be true. That the fact is really heightened under stress because we're using this even more primitive, even more blunt force instrument of just that threat detection system, right? So if you put a bodyguard out on the street and you say, hey, look for trouble, uh-huh. that's exactly what they're going to do, <laughs> right? And if the part of your brain that's activated is saying, hey, look for trouble, keep us alive, that's exactly what it's going to do. But the cost of that is often curiosity, kindness, connection, because when we view everyone and everything as a potential threat, and then layer on that, the change fatigue of this time, we don't particularly want to be challenged (laughs) in our ways of thinking right now, because we are stretched so thin (laughs) in terms of adaptive challenges at the moment. So absolutely, it impacts the way that we show up for each other. And I think that drives a lot of the secondary stuff in terms of relationship impacts and even mood, right? We are human beings, we're social animals. We feel safe and we feel much um, much more engaged in life when we're connected. And here we are in this chronic state that actually drives um, cynicism, disconnection, and a kind of shutting down of um, a curiosity about life, if you will. The other piece or another angle that I'm interested in is how we have this grand lack of control right now and are feeling threatened by the stressors. And it makes me think about situations where it may appear from the outside to be a bit irrational why somebody's getting so upset about something that doesn't feel like it warrants that level. One thing, this is from, you know, somebody else may think this is actually totally rational, but to me, one thing would be the issue of masking in schools, which feels like it's such a hot button issue for parents and has closed down PTA meetings and been some of the rowdiest you know, public gatherings lately all over whether children should be masked in schools. And it feels very disproportionate to the issue at hand in a way, but you have to wonder if this is the one area where people feel like maybe I have some control maybe I could have a say here. Yeah, I absolutely, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. You know, if you go back to those four conditions that really activate our stress response, what we start craving in the face of that stress and anxiety is a sense of control, predictability, decreasing threat, et cetera. And so we're, those of us who are saying, 
come on, it's not that big of an ask and it keeps everyone safer. We're focusing on decreasing the threat, right? <laughs> That's how we're going to feel better. For folks who are saying, you know, over my dead body, that's not happening. My kid's not wearing a mask. They're actually focusing probably just on a different part, even if that's not happening consciously, which is increasing their sense of control. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I, I do think that to rehumanize one another is to kind of reactivate empathy. We have to understand the ways in which people respond to fear, the ways in which people respond to heightened stress, and then try to see from that angle that what they're wanting to feel is not so different from what I'm wanting to feel. We just have very different roads to get there. Yes, that's, I think that's beautifully said. Um, and, you know, I know that some may feel like this sort of empathy or compassion feels like a lot of emotional labor when somebody is feeling stressed and got a lot going on in their lives. So that kind of leads to maybe the next section, which is how can we, how can, how can you suggest that people help cope with the stress that they're feeling and first take care of themselves so that they can then, well, first take care of themselves. Let's start there. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is the starting place. And for parents in particular, I will say the, the oxygen mask uh, metaphor has never been more applicable um, you know, I, I think of this in sort of phases. So um, if you think of emotions as coming in waves, you have sort of your, your baseline point, um, which everyone knows what their own baseline looks like, but what are the things that help you maintain a healthy baseline? And then you have as your emotions start to rise, and here I'm talking about sort of more unpleasant feeling, stressful emotions, what does it look like or feel like for you when you're at a three, a four, a five, a six? You know, you're still in control, um, but you probably start to show some cracks in the armor, right? So maybe that is um, you're a little more impatient or a little less creative or a little more indecisive. Everyone has their own ways that that shows up. But I find that oftentimes, people feel like they're going from zero to a hundred because they're not attuned to their signs of when they're at a three, four, five, six to be able to intervene before they get really flooded. Um, then I think of it and I'll talk about skills for each of these levels, but once you're at a kind of eight, nine or 10, what we're really talking about there is the alarm has been sounded. That prefrontal cortex is getting really dampened. You cannot think clearly. And this is where we're just doing more um, intense kind of management of emotions without creating a new problem. That's yeah. a different set of skills. Yeah. And then finally coming down on the other side of that, which we always will, even though it doesn't feel like it in the moment often, there's a different set of skills for really um, clearing the emotional residue so that we can get back to baseline. That makes me think of what you said at the very beginning, which is that even though a stressor has maybe gone away, the stress hasn't necessarily left us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so those, those clearing of the emotional residue skills are really specifically, um, they're specific skills that help us return to baseline. And that's been a lot of the work that Emily and Amelia Nagoski, who I referenced earlier, who wrote that book, Burnout, a lot of their work has been on what are those evidence-based strategies that help us clear stress after a stressor has passed. So I'll talk about in each of these areas what we can do. I also want to say, though, 
that um, for some of us, we were focused more on kind of um, how do I maintain and build resilience during this time? For others, the wind's been knocked out of us for a long time here. And there are people feeling genuinely traumatized, you know, who have gone through um, traumatic loss during this time, grief during this time, um, a lot of race-related trauma, obviously also at the forefront of the national conversation right now. And you can't turn on the news without some vicarious trauma right now. Um, and so I think it, there's also, we could have a whole separate conversation about this, but essentially this distinction to me, me between the things that help us cope, the things that help us build resilience, and then really this whole separate field of post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. How do we sort of claw our way back when we have been really knocked down um, in ways that actually help us end at a higher point than our baseline? And that's different than day-to-day coping. Those are kind of bigger picture questions in terms of where we focus our energy. Um, But since you're asking about coping, (laughs) I'll give a quick rundown of some of the evidence-based tools for promoting this effective coping and also self-regulation, meaning how we're managing and regulating our emotions at each phase of this. Mm -hmm. So at baseline, um, we really want to be focused on what has been probably an overused term, but this idea of self-care. I actually really like um, Guy Winch has this wonderful TED talk where he talks about the concept of emotional hygiene. And the basic idea is just like we have physical hygiene and we get up in the morning and we brush our teeth and we take a shower and we don't ask ourselves, do I feel like doing this today? It's just built into our routine. We learned it as kids and hopefully never stop doing it or very rarely stop doing it. Um, So the idea with emotional hygiene is the same. What are those small things that have such a big payoff for your mental health that they really should be non-negotiable parts of your routine and that have such a cost if you don't do them (laughs) that they really should be non-negotiable parts of your routine? And then how do you build them in? How do you create processes in your life so that they just happen as automatically as possible? They're as effortless as possible to stay in those routines. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, other kind of healthy habits we want to encourage at baseline are just focusing on what is within our control and investing more of our time and energy there. Um, Engaging in actually creative activities, which is harder to do once you're in a stressed place. But for people who say, okay, I got to sit down and write a whole song right now, or I've got to sit down and produce this thing, and it feels like a bigger task, that's sometimes too much to bite off under under more stressful conditions. And so um, there's something from that book, Atomic Habits, that I really like, which is the two-minute rule. Just promise yourself two minutes. You can do just about anything for two minutes mm-hmm. and just start, just play for two minutes, just write for two minutes. And if you feel moved and you want to keep going, cool. If you don't, cool. <laughs> you did it. You hit your goal. That's right. That's right. But for a lot of us, because that stress response dampens executive functioning and initiation, just getting started is an executive function, it's actually really important to just lower the bar for getting started. 
Right. That's great. I love that. I think that will be so helpful. Going, going back just a little bit to, I think this is slightly different than what you're talking, maybe it's the same thing, but you're talking about things you could do at baseline to kind of maintain your emotional health that are almost automatic. Do you have an example of, you know, what that might look like? Sure. So if, of an emotional hygiene skill? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So for me, getting outside and going for a walk uh-huh. at some point every day, uh-huh. right? I can tell myself a million things I need to be doing instead of that walk. But the fact is I will be more effective and more efficient all day long if I go for that walk, right? So it always pays me back. It's always a good investment of my time and energy. But for me to build it into my existing routines makes it much more likely to happen. So now I just walk my kids to and from school instead of driving them. And then it's a guarantee that I get that walk in. Or I take a supervision phone call for an hour in the middle of the day and I say, hey, can we do this by phone instead of Zoom? And I go for a walk during that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? So building in the things that sustain you in ways that you're sort of out of excuses, if you will. <laughs> you've, you've made them easy enough that you know you're making excuses if you don't do them. Got it. You've built them in and you've essentially prioritized them. You prioritize them, but importantly, and this is where the processes really matter, they don't rely on willpower. Willpower is always a short-term strategy, and it's a pretty ineffective one under times of stress, right? So we cannot rely on willpower to do the things that matter to us. We have to create systems that make them easier and make the things that we might try to do instead, like social media browsing or things like that harder to interrupt us. Right. That's so right. I'll take my social media off my phone and create this other habit that really helps me feel good. And the combination is actually probably giving me more time in my day and more of it's focused on stuff that helps to sustain me, less of it's focused on stuff that makes me feel tired, even though it feels tempting in the moment. Great. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want me to go through just a few more of these kind of strategies at each level? Yes, please. That would be great. Um, Another, and I already alluded to this, spending time outside. This is, and especially moving, moving your body in any way. This is really important, particularly for folks who have a trauma history or who have found this last year and a half to be traumatic for them. Um, because part of the trauma state is that we feel immobilized, helpless, and stuck. And so when we do something that literally signals back to our brains, I am not immobilized. I am mobile. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I am unstuck. I can move. I can be physically free here. It actually has a very calming effect on the nervous system almost immediately. Right. And so anything that mobilizes us, particularly outside, is really grounding. And especially if you can combine it with something that creates a kind of grounding mindfulness. Um, so I often go for what I call mindfulness walks. But what that really means is I'm just going for a walk and I am intentionally attending to the things around me that I find beautiful. Mm-hmm. Look at that cloud. Look at the light bouncing off that building. Look at the way the light's playing with those leaves on that tree. And really, I'm just using my senses to ground me in the moment I'm in, in a way that, again, lets my body know right now I'm safe, I'm free to move around, and I'm in control of what I'm doing. Okay, that's great. 
Um, another really big one is both and, you know, I think that um, sometimes it's, we feel like we have to choose between these narratives. I'm one of the lucky ones, or this is really hard. I can't do this. And the truth is that it's almost always a both and this is really hard and I can do hard things. Or I am, I have not been able to play out in a venue in months and I am still a musician, (laughs) right? And so what are those both hands that are really important to people in maintaining perspective and maintaining hope, but also in maintaining their identities when the rug gets pulled out from under them and just really practicing those. Um, Boundaries have probably never been more important. So that's another really important baseline one. Um, yes is a commitment and it's a, it's a sort of promise of your resources whenever you say yes to something. Mm-hmm. And so you just want to be really thoughtful about where you're committing your resources and why. No is reserving optionality <laughs> on your resources, uh-huh. right? So I'm not saying say no to everything. Certainly isolation withdrawing from life is not helpful, but I do think it's a time to be really intentional knowing that our reserves are running low. Um, I want to, if you, if I can skip back to the one that you just said, the, it was the, and how did you say it? Both and. Yeah. You know, I have said this myself. I, when I ask people, maybe I haven't seen them for a while, how are you doing? Or my own clients, there's so much, you know, I, this is hard, but I feel bad for saying that because so many people have it so much harder and there's, they want to recognize that. And, you know, I just asking the question, how are you, which is always a very casual question where we're not always looking for the, the depth of, of the answer in those moments. But I think a lot of people are kind of like, well, I'm kind of okay. I'm surviving. My life is going on. But this has been hard. And I think that that's important to, uh, it feels important to tell people that even if, even if you have been able to work, even if you have been able to maintain your life in ways that other people haven't, yeah, we can recognize that there's degrees of difficulty and degrees of, you know, stress. And that for some people has been truly, literally traumatic. And for others, maybe it's been a different experience, but it's still been hard. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when we, when we try to sort of say, oh, but it, you know, it's harder for other people or, you know, it's really not that bad. I have nothing to be that upset about, or I'm okay. You know, whatever the the answer is, we're, we're really practicing invalidating ourselves. If we're having a hard time and we're saying, well, I guess it's okay because it should be okay. (laughs) We're not feeling okay then you're invalidating your own experience. And that's actually the opposite of what's going to be helpful. We know that there's this expression, name it to tame it, right? That therapists use that as soon as we name a difficult emotional state, we decrease the intensity of that state, just naming it. And so when we do the opposite, when we invalidate it, when we deny it, when we push it down, it actually kind of helps it cling on and intensify. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to have the both and to be able to say, 
you know, I'm feeling exhausted and stressed and I'm languishing a little bit here, right? I'm not good. I'm not bad. I'm like a lot of people right now. Um, And I know it's going to be okay. I'm really lucky and I have what I need to rebuild here. That's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's reminding me, I want to say, and I don't want to go too far off topic here, but if you look at the resilience research, the the most resilient people are those who have had moderate levels of adversity across a number of domains with good support and good opportunity to recuperate between major stressors, right? So that's really important to understand because we the reason that people who have very little adversity don't tend to be very resilient is that they don't have a lot of practice coping, a lot of practice, even learning to trust themselves to adapt. And the reason people who have chronic unrelenting high stress in their lives or high adversity in their lives also don't tend to be the most resilient is because they don't have the experience of coming out on the other side of it in a way that builds that sense of, I can do hard things and be okay on the other side of it. Right. And so if we're going through something really difficult, if our kids are going through something really difficult, it's really important to be asking ourselves, okay, I can do hard things, but how am I making sure I have opportunities, even little mini opportunities to come out on the other side of this feeling? Right. And so when we're talking about these kind of emotion tools, we use at different points on that emotion wave. Part of what I'm thinking about is how do we get to the other side of that wave and how do we create opportunities for rest and recuperation on the other side of it. Um, so then this next area I was saying is the kind of like three to five, three to six, seven, it, it depends for different people, whatever your mid range is where it feels tolerable, manageable, but difficult. And that's where we tend to think of true coping skills being the most helpful, meaning I'm noticing my emotions escalating. I got to do something here to manage them and keep them from getting in the way too much. Emotions are not in and of themselves problematic at all. I want to say that as a therapist, I think it's important to name that. But sometimes the um, behaviors that emotions motivate can become really interfering. Mm-hmm. For people. Mm-hmm. So it can be helpful to have tools for managing and regulating those emotions because they don't always happen at the most convenient times. Um, so when stress begins to mount, I would just start with that self-compassion and self-validation. Of course, I'm feeling this. This yeah. is a hard time. Uh-huh. This is stress. I can be kind to myself the way I would be kind to a friend going through something difficult. Um, Name it to tame it. So here's what I'm feeling. Here's, I think, why I'm feeling it. Um, Maintaining your sense of humor and showing appreciation for others' sense of humor. Laughter is incredible medicine. There's actually these wonderful studies looking at this and just laughter alone um, really drives connection and helps to release some feel-good chemicals in the body. Uh-huh. Um, practicing setting even firmer boundaries where you know you're getting your your reserves are getting low. Engage in whatever your preferred coping strategies are. For some people that's drawing, for some people that's playing music, for some people that's going for a walk. And if you're not sure, do behavior experiments. Go out there, try different things and notice. How did I feel before? How did I feel after? Did that thing pay me back? If it didn't, it might not be your thing. If it did, great, add it to your list. Um, And then 
increasing social support. Importantly, this is not just kind of um, polite social banter. These are the people you can be really raw with and really real with and get what genuinely feels like support meeting you where you are. Um, therapy, I think for a lot of folks also plays this role. Um, and then using diaphragmatic breathing. So those deep belly breaths were filling up um, our belly as we're breathing. And this may be too granular, but you want between six and 10 breaths per minute. So we want to be really slowing down our breathing when we're doing diaphragmatic breathing. Okay. And then when emotions are really high, when you're in that peak zone, uh, this is not the time to reason with, engage in problem solving, have a conversation with somebody. This Definitely is don't. There's in front of you. Kind of moment. What's that? This is what the tiger is in front of you. Yes. This is like the tiger is there. Your brain is basically full bodyguard mode right now. You are not in a state to have a rational conversation. Okay. And so in that moment, actually the, the whole job is to get through the peak of that feeling without creating a new problem. That's it. Okay. And the good news is because it's meant to help us run away from a tiger, it will actually come up and go down on its own if we do nothing to fuel it and nothing to create a new problem within 10 or 15 minutes for most people. That is really handy. I think having a, a number assignment, a minute assignment to, right. you know, wait this out. And that actually feels, you know, more manageable than. Totally. I mean, even I work with a lot of people who have panic attacks and there's often a kind of interacting in ways that keep refueling some of the panicky feelings. But if you actually just sit there and ride out the peak of that feeling, I've never seen it last longer than 15 minutes in somebody who's not doing something to refuel it. Yeah. And if you really have a hard time tolerating it or it becomes a safety issue for some people when they're feeling their emotions that, that intensely, then you can use um, what we call grounding tools, which are things that help to kind of bring it down a little bit more quickly by grounding you in your senses. Um, this is particularly um, helpful for people who have trauma histories and you're essentially grounding your brain and your body in the moment that you're in, in ways that send signals back to your brain that you're safe in this moment okay. to come down more quickly. So an example could be, think of it, any of the five senses, but you could say, okay, I'm going to push my feet really firmly into the ground and I'm just going to breathe and notice the feeling of the pressure of my feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. You can do anything with the five senses. Some people will use chewing a piece of gum uh -huh. and just noticing the changes in texture and taste as they're chewing it or looking around the room and naming five blue things, five red things. <laughs> five green things. Um, and the idea is basically you're just pulling your attention from the rumination on the threat or the thing that's upsetting you to physically being present in the space you're in where you're safe okay. while you come down. And so it can just kind of um, help that peak last a little bit less long. Okay. That's and then when you come down on the other side of it, that's when you're in the kind of recovery from the activated stress response. Um, this is where Emily and Amelia Nagoski's work has focused a lot. And they make this really important point, which is essentially you have to speak body language to your body at that point. Hmm. Right? Because in your, because 
of the ways in which we experience that really heightened stress response, we can't sort of rationalize our way out of it. So um, they have these seven evidence-based stress recovery strategies. Um, one is any kind of movement or physical activity. Another is diaphragmatic breathing. So like we talked about before, slow, deep belly breaths. Uh-huh. Another is supportive social connection. So this is the kind of debrief processing conversation. Another is a 20 second hug. So ideally with someone you're close enough with, but that's not (laughs) awkward. Um, But that actually releases a whole cascade of kind of bonding chemicals in the body that help us to feel safe and deactivate our stress response. Um, A good cry, which is the release relief cry, not thinking about everything that's upsetting you, but releasing the emotion, letting it go. belly laughter and if you can't get there that maybe you keep funny videos on your phone or you talk to a friend that's kind of your reverend and makes you laugh no matter what the circumstances um if you can't get there you can actually get a lot of the benefit just by thinking about the last time you laughed so hard your belly hurt oh wow okay that's interesting um and then the last one perfect for your audience is creative expression So when you're trying to clear out the emotional residue, that's a great moment to sit down. Don't get outcome focused, just focus on the creative process. Just write a song about what you're feeling. Think about what you just went through. Play something that say like, all right, what, what sound, what's a song that sounds like how I'm feeling (laughs) right now. Right. So make it almost like an improv type creative activity rather than focusing on any kind of product at the end of it. I love that. That's great. And that's it. So that I mean, those are the those are the evidence based strategies we have for the different points of the emotion cycle. They really do work. Um, and I think the trick is getting started. So I will go back to that two minute rule and say, if you think I don't know if that's going to work for me or I don't know if that's going to be a fit, just try these things for two minutes and see what happens. Yeah. There's one, and I'm trying to think if you had, so the idea of um, feeling out of control and regaining a sense of control, would that be something, I can't quite remember if that was something along the way maybe you mentioned briefly, but you know, for example, perhaps it's helpful to create, maybe not fine detail, but kind of major beats of the day, creating a structure for your day, which feels, or something like that, would something like that be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. So I I had talked before about kind of focusing on what's within your control and putting your energy and attention there. And that's a huge part of it. So just what you're alluding to, creating structure and routine, things that you can count on happening so that being able to anticipate what's going to happen. The key is to make sure you're doing it with some flexibility because when we're in an anxious state, uh, we're much more prone to becoming rigid about things or wanting them to be just so or becoming perfectionistic. And that of course defeats the purpose. (laughs) We, We want things though that we can count on and look forward to. So even these little routines, like I have a favorite coffee cup. I can genuinely look forward every morning to holding that cup in my hands smelling my coffee, taking a few minutes and drinking it. And I know that that's a routine I can count on as small kind of trivial as that may seem. Yeah. 
you know, even planning out your meals for the week or planning out friends that you're going to see over the weekend or something like that. It gives us something we can count on and look forward to at a time where a lot feels unpredictable to us. Great. This has been so informative, not only in um, learning about the different tools and coping strategies you can try along certain points, like you said, uh, how far away you are from your baseline in terms of stress, um, but also just has been so educational and understanding, you know, what happens when we're stressed and um, why we may be less able to do things that we'd like to do, or maybe responding in ways that we might not respond at a different time when we're not feeling so stressed and, you know, has implications not only for how we take care of ourselves, but also how we view the world around us and feel mm-hmm. compassion for the people too, I think. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I, I have been looking at this data from all different angles for the last 18 months. And my takeaway from all of it has been that the things that drive disconnection for us from each other, from our work, from our relationships, from our um, values, who we are and what we care about, um, all the things that drive disconnection keep us stuck over time in that stress response and stuck in a worldview that feels a lot harder and a lot more hopeless at times. And all the things that drive connection, whether that's mindfulness, connection to the environment, um, investing in relationships, connection to other people, creative pursuits, connection to the work that we're doing, things that get us in a state of flow, everything that drives a sense of connection is what's going to bring us out on the other side of this thing whole and get us through it, however long we're in some version of this. So my hope is that that that's a takeaway that um, all of these individual tools are helpful, but the thing that the kind of theme among all of them is that they reconnect us to ourselves, to our world and to each other in ways that sustain us. That's great. Well, thank you. That sounds like, is there anything else that you want to add or kind of finish? That sounds like a good, a good resting place for you. Um, Thank you so much, Caroline, for your time and for all those thoughts. I love how, um, really appreciate how in-depth this was and it's not just kind of a surface level, listicle type, here's what you can do, but really I think added to hopefully um, our understanding of what prolonged stress is and how we can, how we can cope with it while we're all going through this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. Okay, I want to thank Dr. Caroline Edelman for her time today. That was a great conversation. I thought she was so um, in-depth about it. Learning about it was so refreshing and just helpful to kind of affirm what we've had, what we've been going through. If you want to know more about Dr. Caroline Edelman or even set up an appointment at her clinic, you can visit chicago-psychotherapy.com. I will also be putting a link to many of the things she mentioned and her website as well in the show notes, which you can find at musictherapypodcast.com. Thank you guys all for listening. I really hope this was helpful today. Uh, I hope to see you at the shows next week and uh, hang in there and I'll be back next week. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker. 
produced by Sullivan Davis and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago.